Good morning. It is great to be with you. I want to thank Kip for filling in for me a couple weeks ago. I was suffering and couldn't be at the sermon I was supposed to preach. So. Um, so about that time, when I was laying there with COVID, wondering when the end was coming, by the way, welcome, I'm supposed to do that, want to do that, and welcome to the at-home attenders. I have lots of friends who need to be at home for one reason or another for this, um, so welcome to all of you. About that time, I looked at, or I started thinking, I wonder what I preach on next, um, because I know it ahead of time. I mean, Kip produces it like a year ahead. But I like to do things last minute. Uh, no, so about three weeks ago, and that's, that's usually my lead time on a sermon. I give myself about three weeks to, uh, to work on one. Uh, I, looked at, I looked up the text that I was going to preach, and it was the genealogy of Matthew. So I thought there was a mistake. So I looked back, because I thought there must be some, like, text, right? Like, Kip wouldn't, Kip wouldn't do that to me. So I got out my phone, because whenever Kip gives us a preaching calendar, I take a picture of it, and then I heart it so that I can always find it again. And then usually I email it to my wife as well, or I text it to my wife so I can find it multiple ways, because I'm disorganized. So I open that up, I look, and sure enough, it's just the genealogy. So I texted Kip right then and said, hey, just looked at my text, it's just the genealogy. Is there a mistake? And Kip is slow to return texts. Um, so I had a couple days, or I had some length of time, and I started working on my sermon. And um, by the time he texted me back and said, yes, that's correct, if you want the next sermon after that, you can have that instead. He was willing to switch with me. Well, by then, I had researched this genealogy, and I was like, no, 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 no. Let me have that. I want it. It's going to be great. Um, so genealogy. The first word that comes to your mind is Riveting. Here's the reality, though, and if you listen to my preaching, you know that I love genealogy. Hebrew literature does amazing things with genealogy. They lure you in. They make you, so probably if you've ever read through the Bible, when you get to a genealogy, you're like, man, I'm going to cheat. And you just like blaze through it. But we shouldn't do that because God does something in the genealogies through Hebrew literature that is uh, pretty remarkable. And it tells a story in a different and unique way. So gather around children as we tell the Christmas story from the first chapter of Matthew starting with Abraham. Matthew 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so we start with our first Christmas character, Abraham. He is the father of the nation of Israel. He was called by Yahweh out of the Ur of the Chaldees, the New York City, the uh, London, the Paris. He was called out of that to follow God over to a land that he didn't know, 
and do things that he wasn't uh, prepared to do by faith. Abraham was given the promise of a land all of his own for his, and a nation, a people, a great people that would come out of him, and the promise of a blessing, and sometimes we say a leader or a purpose, Kip would add. He was given those things, and that was going to fulfill the promise made about the Messiah in Genesis 3.15, that someone would come and crush the head of the serpent. And so our Christmas story starts with Abraham. He has a son named Isaac. Isaac's name means laughter. Um, Partly because he was given 25 years after he was promised. We're thinking about hope this morning, and um, you're going to pick it up probably pretty quick that hope has to do with waiting. And so Abraham waits 25 years from the time he's told he's going to have a son until the time that he finally has a son, and he's 100 years old, and his wife is 90 when that happens. Isaac has Jacob, whose name means trickster. It literally means heel grabber. So you can imagine if you're walking along with someone and you have the dexterity to grab their heel in between steps, uh, they're going to trip and fall. Um, And that's who Jacob was, one of the heroes of the faith, the trickster patriarch, who stole the blessing from his brother Esau, who didn't have to, because Yahweh had already promised that he was going to be the one who got the blessing. His name was eventually changed to Israel, and I'm going to make half of you, well, I'm going to anger half of the people who care about this. Um, The name Israel means God fights. There's a big disagreement over what it means. But I think it means God fights. Um, And so God is going to fight for Israel. Well, Jacob has Judah, to whom was promised the rule of Israel. The scepter was never going to depart from Judah. He then sold his brother Joseph into slavery. He then begat Perez. Perez is the son of Tamar. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law who had his son. But he didn't mean to because he thought she was a prostitute. Um, They then have Hezron, Ram, Amenadab, Nashon, and Salmon who are known in scripture primarily in genealogies. So we don't know a whole lot about them or what they did. Their significance is that they lead us to Boaz. And Boaz, if you're reading through the scripture, um, my wife is reading through the scripture out loud to the kids, and um, it is dark, (laughs) uh, sometimes sad stuff. But you get to Boaz, and he is a godly, um, gracious, kind man, and he is a breath of fresh air in the Old Testament. Uh, He is a kinsman redeemer of Ruth. This sounds a lot like the Christmas story we're used to, right? I wanted to remind you that this is a Christmas story. Um, He had Obed, who had Jesse, and that led us to... forgot about my slides. The great and glorious King David. David. 
right? This is the high point. This is a high point in Israel's history when finally the shepherd boy is chosen and anointed to be the king. It's a majestic moment. God is working to bring the Messiah, and David is promised that his son is going to sit on the throne and that he will always have a son to sit on the throne. So here we have this remarkable rise to glory. I mean, with some sad things along the way. And now we see that we're going to slide into exile. Because right after it gets done, this this, uh, ark has been working up, 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 up. We had some hiccups with Judah and others. David was the father of Solomon. Solomon, wisest man, supposedly, to have ever lived, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Do you see what genealogy does? Don't breeze through genealogies. Take your time. Look at them. They take a remarkable amount of work (laughs) to figure out because they are reminding us of things that we have to look back to. Um, My sermon is like 10 pages long here. Some of you are quite scared, but it's just because I had to do all kinds of research and writing on all these different people that are listed. So it isn't easy. It's hard, but it does complex things. So right away, we are reminded of David's fall. We have this great and glorious moment, and then he kills Uriah and steals his wife, Bathsheba, bears him Solomon. He did build the temple, but gradually and certainly he turned his heart away from Yahweh. His devotion and dependence turned from Yahweh to his thousand plus wives and concubines. and the political alliances that those women represented. Solomon, the wise man who played the fool. He has Rehoboam. Rehoboam splits the kingdom of Israel in two under his foolish leadership. And idolatry, for the rest of the time, we're going to follow the southern kingdom, okay, just the two southern tribes. Idolatry runs rampant in all of it, but in the lower part of Israel. And in Scripture, it says, uh, when you look back at Rehoboam, that he uh, built on every high hill and under every spreading tree a place of false worship. And the point is, everywhere you turned, anywhere you could build a false god, he did. And the Israelites, it says, practice the detestable deeds of those God had ejected from the land. They're as bad as those that God judged before them. He has Abijah, who follows after his father's ways, and things get worse. The text says that Yahweh preserved him because he loved David. A couple times the text is going to say that, and it's like God says, Man, I just want to end this line. But he remembers David. Abijah has Asa. Asa follows Yahweh. And you're like, great. Uh, He eliminated male prostitution shrines. He threw out his father's idols. He deposed his wicked grandmother. 
Um, it's not very often you have a wicked grandma in scripture, but there's one there. He cut down her Asherah pole, which uh, would have been um, a particularly vile type of false worship. And he brought some of the promised household wealth that his father had said he was going to bring into the temple. He brought that into the temple. But scripture points out that he didn't remove all of the idolatry from the land. And in the end, the temple, um, and in the end, he uses the temple treasury, which maybe he felt like was his personal piggy bank because he had put it in, um, to form political alliances that he would hope protect him and his people. Followed by Jehoshaphat, who followed Yahweh as his father had. He removed some more of the high places and Asherahs from Judah, but in the end, he didn't root out all of the idolatry. In many of these good kings, there's like this last comment, but he didn't remove all of it. And he made alliances with the king of Israel, who was evil, and so God literally sank all his ships. Jehoram, when he took the rule on this Christmas story, he killed all his brothers and several of the princes. He walked in wickedness and violence, and God killed him with a bowel disease. Did you know there was a bowel disease in the Christmas story? Uzziah followed Yahweh as a young king. He was set on the throne at 16 years of age. God gave him success while he followed him, but gave him leprosy when he tried to take on the role of a priest. Jotham followed Yahweh, and he rebuilt some of the temple that had been um, broken down. And it says that he grew powerful because God was with him. Ahaz? Nope. Ahaz was very wicked. Um, He made his own idols. He shut down the temple, closed it down, looted it, and closed it down. And scripture says that he set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem and in every town in Judah. The guy had drive. Hezekiah. We often joke about the book of Hezekiah. There is no book of Hezekiah that is in scripture, Um, but he was one of the kings, and he had the temple purified and cleansed, and they they hold the Passover for the first time in years, and he calls the leaders of of Jerusalem and um, the southern kingdom to come together and follow Yahweh. He experienced amazing war success when Sennacherib was um, knocking on his gates and God sends an angelic army to destroy it. But in his old age, he was foolish and showed Babylonian officials all the wealth of Jerusalem. Babylon. He showed Babylonians. Okay, that's bad. Manasseh. He became king at 12. How many young men are ready to rule a nation at 12? Manasseh was not. He rebuilt idolatry. He put an idol in the temple of Yahweh. He sacrificed his own sons in the fire to false gods. He practiced sorcery, divination, witchcraft, mediums, spiritists, God judged him by having him exported to Assyria, where he repented. Yahweh restored him to his throne, 
And he came back and he tore down the idols and restored the temple. Ammon was his son. You're going to be shocked. He did evil before Yahweh. He reestablished idolatry. He was assassinated by his own officials. Josiah, not all of these kings are father, son. You would see that if you read the text uh, that they refer to. Um, found the law. It was lost. Israel, which, whose founding document is the law, didn't know where it was. It'd be like us losing the Constitution. Where'd we put that? And then one day, some president is like walking through the White House. He's like, hey, what's this? He finds it and he restores the temple. He's a good king, but you're going to be shocked at the end of his life. He becomes prideful and he enters a battle that God tells him not to, and he's killed. Followed by Jehoiachin, who did evil, and the kingdom of the south falls to Babylon. Experiencing the consequences of their sin and the kindness of God, I would say, to end it. We look at the exile sometimes and we say, what a devastating moment in in Israelite history. You know what? When God finally stops us from sinning, when he breaks that, um, that is a kindness. But what about God's promise? What about the promise that um, David is always going to have a son to sit on the throne? It looks really questionable at this point. Jeremiah, in the middle of all of this mess, Jeremiah 30, you don't need to turn there, I'll just read it. Jeremiah 33, 17 says, this is what Yahweh says, David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. God makes that promise again. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what Yahweh says. If you can break my covenant with the day and break my covenant with the night so that the day and and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites who are my priests before me can be broken and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars of the sky and as measureless as the sand of the seashore. God is not done despite their rebellion. It is a good thing to remember that God does not break his promises. And God has promised that he is going to take us from who we are to the likeness of Christ. And you may have a pretty checkered past, but it is not as checkered as Jesus's. So things look very bleak. If Bruce were standing here preaching, he would say, but God. But God is not done because now we're going to start trudging to the cradle. We are moving to the cradle. And so we get Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. And they help with the repair of Jerusalem and give leadership to the people. And then Zerubbabel is the father of Abuid, Abiud rather, who's the father of Eliakim, who's the father of Azor, who's the father of Zadok, 
who's the father of Achim, who's the father of Eliud, who's the father of Eliezer, who's the father of Mathan, who's the father of Jacob. And those guys, frankly, don't know who they are. Scripture doesn't have any great stories about them. They are just guys in a lineage who are trudging to the cradle, who are waiting and hoping on Yahweh, who are expecting the Messiah to come and who are living their lives along the way. No glory that we know of. Until suddenly, like the dawning of the sun, Joseph. We know Joseph. Joseph, the husband of Mary. Not the father of Jesus, because there's no genetic connection between Joseph and Jesus. But there is between Mary and Jesus, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ or Messiah. And that, children, is a Christmas story. Verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. What's his point? It's a long time. That is 2,000 years of waiting represented from Abraham to Messiah. Abraham was about 2,000 B.C. David was about 1,100 B.C. The exile of the southern kingdom was around 600 B.C. And Jesus came four years before himself. It's a joke. About 4 BC is what a lot of people say. It's 2,000 years of wait when they had already been waiting 2,000 years. I'm a young earth guy. I'm a guy who takes the genealogies of scripture as accurate and literal. One of those wackos. So I think the earth is 6,000 years old. And there were 2,000 years from creation to Abraham. So they'd already been waiting on the Messiah for 2,000 years when God says, now I'm going to get the plan going. Um, 14 generations, there weren't exactly. Uh, Matthew is a numbers guy. He was a tax collector. Um, He likes uh, symmetry and organization. He's trying to give them um, learning aids. And so he puts, he selects the 14 that he's going to put in uh, between them. But the numbers are interesting because uh, 14 times 3 is 7 times 6. Um, so in one sense, there are six sevens on the way um, from Abraham to Jesus. And that's a pattern that God likes. God likes doing six of something and then one of something else. And we see that repeatedly in scripture. Most notable is creation and the weeks, or the days of the week that we have. Um, six days of work, and on the seventh, he rests. Uh, but there were several things that were set up in the Mosaic Law that worked that way. Uh, six of something, and then seven of something else. 
this is not the pristine trajectory that we might have expected. Uh, but Matthew is giving us a Christmas story in a unique way to reveal to us Jesus as a king. Uh, Matthew is going to go on, the book is going to go on and answer the question, if Jesus was the king, how could he have died on the cross? And we're going to see that later. Um, I would encourage you, um, as we are in this time of the nativity, that you would get into scripture. Uh, the reading guide is there in your bulletin. Um, you may be thinking, ah, I don't have time to do that. The reading will literally take you less than two minutes. If your schedule is so packed that you can't do two minutes of scripture reading a day, um, you need to see like a counselor of some kind <laughs> because that's, you're overcommitted. You need some white space in your life at that point. Um, I would really encourage you to do the scripture reading that is laid out in the guide um, and then in January, when we get there, we're actually going to read through the entire book of Matthew. Um, and so prepare yourself for that. Um, it's interesting, there was a study done recently. God doesn't need science to validate him, but I think it's a whole lot of fun when it does. Um, I saw one of my friend's Facebook posts, and I texted her this morning. And I was like, hey, can you send me that link again? And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I'll have it for you later. It'll be on Facebook. Um, but there was a study done that shows that one day a week in Scripture... Un hear my words from a unbelieving scientific standpoint, okay? One day a week in scripture does no good. Two days a week in scripture does no good. Three days a week in scripture does no good. But when they did this study, four days out of a week in the scripture had remarkable spiritual and physical results, it saw anxiety and addiction and dependence uh, decline radically. It saw hope and joy increase. And there were physical benefits as well. Um, again, God doesn't need our proof. But it's interesting when that happens and we see it. So I would really encourage you to get into Scripture. And I think, the, obviously, the, the main thing is that it changes our minds, right? So they waited. They had to wait a very long time. So what? Well, I've got three ideas for you here as we close. Um, there we go. Hope is based on revelation. When we say the word hope in English, we think, man, I sure hope my team wins. Uh, that's not what scripture means when it says hope. Hope in scripture means that we are told a thing is going to happen. Abraham was told a blessing is going to come from you, a ruler to lead my people. And it took 2,000 years for him to get there. Um, hope is based on revelation and waiting. Abraham's 25-year wait on Isaac is trivial. It is a blip compared to the 2,000 years or the 4,000 years or now the 6,000 years until Jesus' rule is established. God has called us to wait. I think in part, he wants to do a lot of things. He wants to see people come to know him. But he wants us to experience faith. 
He wants us to experience dependence on him. And if God were a cosmic microwave or vending machine, we wouldn't have those. And our souls would not be nurtured by the faith and hope that we have to experience. But hope means waiting faithfully. So how do we wait faithfully? I have three ideas for you, followed by 27. First, understand that waiting, the wait, does not negate God's goodness. I've met a lot of people whose faith is broken by the waiting. Waiting on God to do something that he said he would do. If you are waiting, if you're in the middle of something and you are starting to lose your faith, lose your hope, I would encourage you to remember that the waiting does not negate God's goodness. Secondly, our bit parts matter. Disney and our culture has taught, taught us that we should do great things. There is something special inside of you that if you will only unlock it will make you a remarkable person. And you know what evangelicalism did? Hook, line, and sinker. My wife and I were talking about it when we were in college. Chapel, ser chapel sermons were repeatedly do big things for God. I'm here to tell you to do small things for God. Do your bit part. That's, all, that's all, almost all of us are ever going to have, and that's what we see in that last genealogy, the last section. We have all these guys who did their bit parts by having the next child. Good job. <laughs> Your wife did most of it. <laughs> Do small, faithful things for God. We think that flashy people get the better seats in heaven. I would suggest to you that the guy, the, the 13th century farmer who loved his family, who cared for it, to, who taught his children about God, who tended to his arbor and his garden, probably has a better seat than our flashy people of today. The retiree that I see walking around our neighborhood, who I know is praying faithfully for me, the other elders, the pastors, the preaching of the church, its well-being, has a far better seat than the flashy people. If we're going to accept that Jesus' words are true, that the last shall be first, that the least shall be greatest, we need to change our minds about the significance of our bit parts. You and me have bit parts. So let's live them faithfully. How do we do that? We do the work that God has given us to do as stewards. You could listen to um, our work series from back when, but I'll give you the, the synopsis of it. The work that God has called you and me to do is to care for the spiritual and physical well-being of our families. The work that God has called you and me to do is to care for the physical and spiritual well-being of our families and understand that the two are linked. There is no sacred-secular divide. There should not be a Bible time that is separate from life. So what are some ways that we can do this? Here's the 27. I haven't counted them. There might be more. First, make your bed. 
think I'm kidding. I'm not. You are called to subdue the world. And if we can't subdue our beds, <laughs> we are hopeless. Make your bed. Elsie Abra in college, he was my, uh, uh, the RA for our floor, and he was from um, Pacific Island somewhere, and um, he would walk into my room, and it was a mess, and he's like, Sam, at least make your bed. Make your bed. Put gas in the car. Make cookies. Turn off the series or movie that you're watching that's pulling you away from God's truth. Read a book to your spouse. Choose joy. Look for it. Pray. Clean up the kitchen. You come home work from you come home from work tired. Clean up the kitchen. Do your homework. Fix the broken dryer. Pick up trash. Don't walk by it. Celebrate holidays purposefully. Today is the start of Advent. You still have time. Today's candle is a candle of hope, the candle of prophecy. Go to work with a good attitude and a good work ethic. Take care of your pets. Be generous. Make dinner. Learn doctrine. Tuck your children into bed. Celebrate birthdays. Tend to the movies, TV, music, games, and social media that your children are watching and experiencing. Sing. And when you have done these with your family, level up and do them for friends and extended family and neighbors. Uh, we were sick recently for a long time, and people did these things for us. But you know what? Scripture says that the man who doesn't take care of his own family is worse than the one who's far away from God. We need to start with our families. And when we are doing that well, then we have the freedom and the spiritual uh, permission to go out and do it for others. I want to give you a benediction. Why don't you stand as I read this? This is Romans 15, 13, and this is your sending today. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Blessings on you.